Hello and welcome to episode one of Mark Meets. I'm Martin. Now, some of you may know me from the Bad Wolf podcast or from Running Down Corridors. This is essentially where we're going to be moving all of the interviews to. So it's a podcast where I talk to people I find interesting. And on this first episode, I am joined by the multi-talented Connor Ratliff. Now, Connor hosts the very popular podcast, Dead Eyes. Let's just get on with it. Okay, so I'm now joined by Mr. Connor Ratliff. Connor, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Yeah, we were just bonding over our love for uh, Tile of Destiny before we started recording. It's a fun time at the movie theater. I think this is a fun summer for movies shaping up to be. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Mission Impossible. I think that's the one I'm most excited for. It looks fun. Uh, Oppenheimer looks, I mean, if, if fun is probably the wrong word, but it looks like a good trip to the movies you know double feature with barbie perfect yeah that's the people are gonna have a fun friday i'm gonna go oppenheimer then barbie i think i don't know i, I maybe i'm barbie oppenheimer I, i'm not sure i don't know i feel like after oppenheimer you need like a little bit of a sugar rush maybe barbie yeah i i think you can't go wrong i think it's it's gonna be one of those things that whatever order people choose is gonna be right for them yeah true true so you've got two shows coming up at edinburgh you here to talk about yeah technically three because we got a, one at the end that sort of like picks up the last four shows <laughs> um but yeah we're doing 30 performances in 27 days you're insane it's it's a foolish thing to do perhaps so how did that come come to be well you know i've, I've always wanted to bring something to to edinburgh and i never have and i have mm. lots of friends who've done shows there it's, it's one of those things that I, I i sort of i think maybe slightly um accelerated by both my own sense of like it's better if i do it now than if i wait 10 years from now you know i I may not feel like doing it but i also think that you know we've been doing the george lucas talk show for almost a decade now and the first six years of that it was like a monthly show in a theater in new york and then during the pandemic during lockdown we ended up doing over 300 hours of show and uh, we did more hours of show in the first like two months maybe even the first month of live stream a pandemic live stream than we had done in the previous six years where we were doing like an hour a month you know and i think it's sort of that experience sort of awakened us to like what are some things we should try to do and one of those was like let's let's bring the show to edinburgh but uh, i also i didn't want to just bring the talk show because we know the talk show works like we've done that we've toured all over with it it's worked everywhere we've gone we want. We figured if we're going to take the time and and effort of going to Edinburgh during Fringe, we wanted to have something that would be a little bit special, a little bit spectacular to premiere at Fringe. So we wrote a play that is a George Lucas talk show original play. But you don't need to know anything about George Lucas or the George Lucas talk show to experience the play. It's a standalone sci-fi tragic comedy. Excellent. What was the genesis uh, of the talk show? The talk show uh, came out of, I, I had been uh, performing at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York for a couple of years, and I was sort of trying to think, you know, what's a show that I could do here that people might come see? And I had, in back in the 90s, I had started doing like a character version of George Lucas just to, it was mostly just to entertain my friends. They would when the special editions came out where George Lucas was fixing things, but also adding things. Yeah. And some of the things he was adding were not to everybody's liking, including mine, but I thought they were funny. I wasn't mad about it. I thought it was kind of funny that this guy had total control. So he could say, no, that's how this goes. And this is a new scene. And I added this, and I added a song here. And 
And so my friends would interview George. They'd say like, hey, George, what do you got? And I would make up things, you know, like things I was planning to do next, things I was going to change and add. And and it was sort of a game that we did for a long time. It was very fun to pretend to be George. And, and uh, you know, if we were... If we were, you know, waiting, if we were waiting for something to happen, we're waiting in line for something, it would be a fun thing to pass the time. And then I, it occurred to me once I was performing and doing comedy shows in New York, I thought, I wonder if that character would be funny if he was the interviewer, because, you know, there's something automatically funny to me about a behind the scenes person who doesn't have really a forward facing personality, right. you know, like a, a talk show is a, you know, um, famously, it's a charisma based uh, format. And George Lucas is not someone that would ever be in line for for presenting work. You know, uh, you, you can be interesting as the subject of an interview, but I thought oh, it would be interesting to turn it. And initially, that was sort of the one central joke was that the guests would not have any. And this is still true a lot of times that we don't just book Star Wars or Lucas related guests. It's not a Star Wars talk show. The idea is that we book regular talk show guests, and George Lucas will find a way of making of tying it into his. His world, his life experience, which is part of the challenge and fun of that is that, like, if you can find a way to tie it into one of like seven major things, whether it's, you know, if it's if someone's in a Marvel movie, I can bring up Howard the Duck. If someone has any connection to the Muppets, I have Labyrinth or David Bowie. Or There's ways that you can tie that are funny, but also um, there's a surprising number of ways that you can. Um, George Lucas's influence over culture, even at a technological level is so immense that I, I found it easy to relate to almost any guest. And at some point be like, well, that's like something I did back when I, you know, changed the way movie soundtracks are designed for American graffiti by scoring it with pop songs or something. You know, like George can talk about a movie like once upon a time in Hollywood and say like, Oh, well, Tarantino wouldn't be able to score his movies out of his record collection. If I hadn't done that first with American graffiti, this is basically his American graffiti that he's making, you know? And so the, the, and then it became just fun. You know, initially um, I had a different uh, comedian named Sean Diston, who was someone that I knew him. We, we, we knew each other, but we'd never performed in a lot of shows together. And I wanted to work with him on a show. I said, Hey, do you want to be, do you want to be Jar Jar Binks? And you can be the sidekick and you can do whatever you want with the character. You can like, you can imitate Jar Jar Binks or you could come up with your own. What he ended up doing was, the early shows, he basically wore rabbit ears and he would come out, he'd have a vest and it would sort of dress a little bit like Jar Jar. And he started off doing the impression and then show by show, he started gradually dropping the voice. <laughs> and then he was just doing his own voice. So he'd come out and be like, hey, everybody, I'm Jar Jar Binks. And he would sort of, and then he would just talk about what he was doing in the industry. And he was, you know, he had a Netflix special and he would, we'd build up like the lore of the show. That's brilliant. And then... Sean moved out to uh, L.A., which is a thing that happens in the New York comedy community. A lot of people go out to Hollywood because they book work. He booked writing work on TV. And so then Griffin Newman, who had been a fan of the show and had been a guest on the show, he and at this point, you know, he was you know starring on TV shows. He was on the Martin Scorsese produced uh, vinyl on HBO. And he then uh, was, became one of the leading actors on The Tick. And he was like, would you be interested in me coming on as your new sidekick as Wada? I said, sure. Yeah, we'll try it. But I kind of thought he's going to do this for a month or two and then he'll get bored of it. you know. And then when he booked the tick, I thought, well, now he's definitely not going to be able to do it. But Griffin would be shooting the tick. And if he could make it to the theater by midnight, he would come and get dressed up as Wado. And the people on the TV show were like, where are you going? He was like, I got to go be Wado in this midnight comedy show. And you know, and now we've done just hundreds and hundreds of, you know, I've, it's not 
unrealistic. I think it's in fact completely accurate to say I have interact. I've spent more time with Griffin Newman as George with him being Watto than we have spent with each other <laughs> in life. We'll never catch up because we did so much live streaming that like we'd have to be stranded on a desert island together to, to <laughs> even come close to, to even then we probably start doing the characters. So we've probably hurt our own uh, efforts uh, if we tried to catch up. <laughs> So what's this other show, The Baron of the Junkyard? What's what's that about? The Baron and the Junk Dealer is a play. It's basically what if George and Watto do. Um, so it's and this is not information that anyone needs going into the play. It's not something that you have to know backstory. The play is a standalone. You watch it from start to finish. You should be able to make sense of it. Um, but it's basically Griffin and I playing George and Watto, who are playing the Baron and the Junk Dealer, and it's about. <laughs> Two strangers who are both on the run. They're both fugitives for different reasons. They both book passage anonymously on a on a cargo ship, which crashes on an empty planet, and everyone dies except for them. And so it starts off with them trying to salvage equipment and figure out if they can send a rescue signal out, and then figuring, should we, is it smart for us to send a rescue signal out? Because we are running from people who are looking for us, so... If we just send a message saying we're here, we could be rescued or we could be captured and or killed. And from there, the play progresses into it's about these two two different kinds of creatures uh, um, from different different planets, different lives. And they are uh, skeptical of one another, but they need each other to survive. So it's um, the, the, the short version of that is it's sort of waiting for Godot in space. Um, but with more of a survival aspect of it, because they are, there are, it's less existential philosophy and more practical. How do we get along? How do we survive? What do we do next? What if this happens? You know, sure. uh, and hopefully funny too, because I think like we're, we're treating it like legitimate real theater, but we're, our comedy background means that <laughs> the more serious we try to make it probably the funnier the play will end up being. Well, yeah, you're going to see George Lucas on Watto play characters. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be funny. Well, yeah. what inspired you to do this then? Um, well, there were a number of different things. One was just like the the idea hit me that like literally what if we wrote a play uh, and and sort of followed on for that. Oh, then we can take it to Edinburgh and sort of thinking about that. But it was also sort of like um, one thing that it wasn't really, I wouldn't say it was the inspiration. But it was a little bit of like a kick in the pants in some ways. It's a, I sort of was thinking like, you know, they're making so many different Star Wars things now and so many different kinds of things. And I know there's a lot of people who really like weirdly angry about it as if they're being forced to like (laughs) sample all of them, you know, but I was watching Andor and thinking like, oh, uh, this is great because this is an example of like somebody who wants to make a certain kind of show and it's both Star Wars and not Star Wars. They kind of the Tony Gilroy is sort of doing the kind of thing he wants to do and he's doing it within the world of someone else's creation. I thought it's a really interesting way to sort of do, it's like doing a cover version of a song where you're like, well, I want it to sound like I want to perform it the way I perform a song, but I like the bones of this, you know, thing of someone and you change the meaning of it by, and there was a part of me that thought like, well, what if, what if I could do anything that I wanted that was like George and Watto doing a play and I didn't have anybody saying like, well, we don't need that or you got to change that. Like, have the freedom to actually see what would happen if I took these characters that that Griffin and I have sort of developed over the years because like you know his version of of like Watto that we do on the George Lucas talk show Watto's in the prequels for like 
six minutes total. It's not, it's not, once you do an hour of that character, you've already like, uh, uh, you're, you've already done so much more than we've ever seen of the character in canon. And I kind of thought, well, what if these two guys were playing characters in a play? Um, but it's, it's not us trying to do like, what would a real George Lucas play be? It's a George Lucas talk show play. It's our, our sort of like, even my my impression of George Lucas is, you know, 10% an impression of George Lucas and 90% this other thing that has evolved over the years because, you know, there's only so much mileage that I think I could get out of doing a strict, well, hello, welcome to George Lucas Talk Show. Today we're going to be talking, you know, like <laughs> that gets old very quickly. You know, you don't like you want to bring other other textures and colors to it. So even even in the in the idea of what would what would George and Watt, what if George and Watto put on a play? It's not me doing a, an accurate impression of what would George Lucas actually be like if you made him act in a play, because we wanted something that had a certain uh, um, flexibility, a certain fluidity in terms of, of, we want to be able to do like really dynamic acting and character work in it to really like try to sell it, you know, to the audience. Have you heard from George Lucas at all? Has he called the show? He hasn't called in. Um, he's welcome to anytime. Um, but every signal we've gotten from George World has been positive. We've never heard anything. We've never gotten a cease and desist. We've never gotten anything. And 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 people that we've who've been on the show who know George have always said we think he'd like this. He'd love this kind of thing that you're doing because he famously like loves comedy. He loves when Mad Magazine would spoof Star Wars or when the Muppets would spoof Star Wars. He always gave his blessing one of the last star wars projects that he did was he personally financed two seasons two full seasons of a star wars show called star wars detours that is just an animated comedy show it's just star wars sketch comedy basically with actual like billy d williams ahmed best there's there's actual star wars voices in this this has been sitting on a shelf in the disney vault since they bought star wars because it's ex- created by executive producer George Lucas. Um, the last Star Wars thing he did was a goofing around comedy show. Um, and so every every message and signal we've gotten has been that, like, we haven't heard, like, oh, George is a fan. He tunes in every time. But um, we've heard other people in that orbit who like the show and approve of the show. That's excellent. So you've had, like, big celebrity guests like Whoopi Goldberg on the show. Yeah. What was it like talking to someone like her? Very surreal because Whoopi happened during the, um, Whoopi came on the show during the period where we were doing very long live streams for charity during lockdown. And so we would be in hour seven of a show and then Whoopi would come on. And if you've ever been in character doing a, a, a show without interruptions for more than three hours, you do get to a place where it's not like Whoopi showing up at your front door and uh, you're completely shocked to see this person in reality. It's Whoopi on a screen, which is where you're used to seeing her in a box on yeah. Zoom. And Whoopi is saying, hey, Watto, hey, George. And you're just like, <laughs> it weirdly feels normal in a way that makes it feel even weirder. Because I never had the feeling that I would have when you see a famous person in reality and you have to realize how tall you are in comparison to them. Hmm how they look the same, how they look different. The proportions of a famous person are always a surprise. They're, they're never the size you think they are. They're always either taller or shorter or older or younger. There's always something about them. Mm. I've never encountered a famous person 
where I didn't have to spend at least 30 seconds recalibrating, recalibrating. That's what this person is like. And But when they're on a screen like that, you're just sort of like, why wouldn't Whoopi be here? You know, it's for charity. And sort of, because also she, when they play along, when, which almost all of our guests are so immediately good at playing along with your George and your Watto, Whoopi was talking to Watto like they'd known each other for decades. Like, <laughs> It was really, you know, and she, she, of course, you know, is someone who knows how to like play along with that type of thing very well. Yeah. And she's, she's a bit of a geek as well, reportedly. She's a huge Star Trek fan. That's how she got to be involved with that. So I bet she loved it. Yeah. And, you know, the, it's funny because you always strive. I wonder what it's like for her. I wonder how much she even remembers that she did it because. For us, it's a big deal. It shows up. For her, it's just one 45-minute segment or whatever that she spent during the pandemic talking to some weirdos on a Zoom, you know? I wonder how quickly that goes down the memory hole of, like, I'm sure she'd remember if reminded, but I wonder if there's been a, a moment's thought. Like, if she ever if she ever sees, uh, you know, a picture of Watto or George Lucas or something, is there a part of her that's like, I, would, I talked to Watto. <laughs> I was on the George Lucas talk show, you know? Oh, I've got to ask yeah, Seth Meyers his cushion back. Yeah, that was a long running thing, which was I had stolen a pillow from South by Southwest. They'd have these special Seth Meyers pillows. They were really nice. And I knew they uh, I knew they were just going to go in a dumpster yeah. afterwards. They weren't going to be, but they weren't for sale and they weren't for taking. And when I started doing the George Lucas talk show, one of the things originally that we were really pushing was that George had just retired from filmmaking. And the premise was that he was like going to try to conquer the American late night talk show scene. So he was sort of placing himself and he still is in the world of the show somewhat that like, well, when Letterman retires, then this will bump up or when Leno retires. So I'd have these things on display on the stage, like Jay Leno's memoir or a a biography of Letterman. Things that were sort of like talk show bona fides where he'd he'd be like, I've studied up on what this format is. And so one of the things was the Seth Meyers bill. It was always there as a, a totem of like, I'm part of the real, you know, New York talk show scene. And then, and then there was a point where somebody made Seth, you know, cause I'm friends with a lot of people who write on Seth Meyers. And then there was a point where I, I went on Seth Meyers as a guest. And that was what really got us to the point of getting the pillow back to him. Um, but there was a point where someone had tweeted at him, like this pillow is on the UV stage every month. And Seth Meyers was like, they have my pillow. What are you talking about? And um we have talked i don't know where the pillow is in 30 rockefeller center now we do occasionally talk about is there a way to heist that pillow <laughs> could there be a way could there be a way that i could infiltrate the offices of late night with seth myers and get the pillow back because we miss it that sounds like a perfect sketch to do as george lucas trying to break into 30 rock to get the pillow i think it's one of the only heists i might actually be able to accomplish <laughs> because i have several inside people who could help facilitate it if it's not under lock and key <laughs> excellent i've got to ask yeah. about dead eyes because you you famously yeah. did this podcast so for anyone who's not familiar why don't you tell people what the podcast is about yeah um the podcast is about how when i was uh 20 plus years ago i was when i was a young actor fresh out of drama school in england I was cast in a very small speaking role in the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. And then I found out that, great news, Tom Hanks is directing the episode I'm going to And then, so everything was coming up roses for me. And then all of a sudden, the day before I was supposed to start filming, 
uh, I got a frantic call from someone in my agent's office saying something's gone wrong. You you have to uh, go to London right away. Um, you have to re-audition for Tom Hanks. He's had a, a he's taken a look at your audition tape and he's having second thoughts. He thinks you have dead eyes. And so I had to get on a train from Liverpool down to London and go to um, uh, the airbase where they were filming Band of Brothers and wait in a little room until Tom Hanks was ready. And then I went in and I re-auditioned in person for Tom Hanks. And minutes later, I was told that I was being let go. I was devastated, of course. And then you cut to, you know, two decades later, I decided it had, by that point, it was no longer a traumatizing memory. It was, it had sort of for a decade or more, it had been kind of a, um, an icebreaker. Yeah. When I started doing comedy at UCB, people would be like, so what's your story? I'd be like, well, I used to be an actor. Oh, why'd you stop? Well, funny story. <laughs> and it occurred to me a few years ago that I thought this could be really interesting as a podcast. If we did it, if we treated it almost like a true crime podcast where there was a mystery to be solved, why did, why did Tom Hanks think I had dead eyes? Did, did I really have dead eyes? Was there something else going on, et cetera? And using that format, I knew that I could, whether I ever got to Tom Hanks to get answers or not, I knew that it was a good frame to hang on other people's stories. It's sort of like the same way that I did with George Lucas talk show that I could always find a way hmm. to connect George Lucas to any guest. you know, that like, um, you know, if, if, you know, if Robert McNamara was a guest on George Lucas talk show or someone like connected to the Vietnam war, I could talk about how apocalypse now was my idea as George Lucas. There's always a way someone that you think would be the last person you would have a connection to George Lucas. You could think of it. In a similar way, with Dead Eyes, I could, if anybody had a story that was like, oh, here's my Dead Eyes story of how I got fired from this, or I had this interaction where this, you know, famous person fired me from a job, or or I also auditioned for Band of Brothers, or here's my interaction with Tom Hanks, and here's what's like. So there were a number of ways that you could tie in guests, and, and, and anytime, like, when... I would hear from somebody famous that they liked the podcast. I would immediately be like, maybe you could be on the podcast. <laughs> and it was amazing how quickly you could find the connection because like uh, um, Seth Rogen was a fan of the podcast. And when I found that out and, and he was trying to correct something that had been said in another episode where someone was like, Oh, I got fired from uh, neighbors uh, from that movie. Cause I think that this happened. And Seth was like, Oh, I want to correct this. Cause that's not actually what happened. And I said, Oh, you should come on the podcast. And I said, do, do, do you have any connection to this? And he says, well, I did audition for Band of Brothers and didn't oh, wow. get cast. I'm like, great. That's a, uh, we have our episode, you know, we know how to do that now. And, you know, it's always, it was such an easy format to come up with ways to tie it back into this very specific and personal experience. It was really like taking comedic narcissism where I make myself the center of everything and a very highly specific story, but then using it as a way of prying open a more universal experience. And actually most of the episodes are not about me, me, me. They're mostly about the guests and their experience. Yeah. And in the end, I can always tie it back into me. And so like, here's how this has to do with me trying to, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and then of course, you know, at the, at the, as we were finishing up our third season, we heard from Tom Hanks. And so we got our, our, our season three finale is this very satisfying and fulfilling exploration of the entire experience with me and just me and Tom in a room for, for, you know, 90 minutes talking. It's a fascinating uh, interview with him and he really breaks down how the industry works. And 
what I found really interesting where he was talking about how somebody criticized the lines on his neck and stuff like that mm-hmm. screening. And that must be a brutal thing to be part of. And you should never have been told that it's because he thought you had, you had dead eyes. Yeah. And that's the one thing everybody that we talked to agrees on is that fundamentally it was it, fundamentally, if you break down what the actual event is, it's about a small breakdown in communication, a small breakdown in protocol, mm. or just a thing that was probably said behind closed doors that actually maybe had a function and a use slipped into another room where its only function would have been to make me feel bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? They didn't send that message to like motivate me or to like <laughs> let, tell him this and we'll, we'll see how his eyes look after this. <laughs> it was truly just, you know, when you're making a, when you're making a big omelet, you're going to break a few eggs. Yeah. That's just the way. And Band of Brothers was one of the biggest omelets ever made for television. Um, <laughs> we had never. How did I? How did I arrive at this metaphor? And never used on an episode of the podcast that I was just one of the eggs. Um, Looking at your eyes right now, Connor. They're not dead. I mean, thank you. I mean, that's what Tom said. Yeah. Um, I. But it was. He was so um, not just generous with his time for that interview, but also completely met met us where the podcast lives, which was he did he wasn't trying to make a joke of it or get away from it or make himself look good. He came there to to talk. Yes. To actually to listen and to respond. And like it is a conversation in the best sense of the word, which is that the, you know, ideally when you're talking to someone, if you say A and the other person says B, the the whatever C is should be something that couldn't have existed independently without those yeah. That's sort of my ideal for conversations that we're really listening and the, the communication is growing out of what we're both learning and, and conveying. And, you know, one of the things that's been really exciting this year is, you know, he just came out with his first novel and, uh, and which is about the process of making a movie. It's called um, the making of another major motion picture masterpiece. And it's a fictional movie, but it goes into the whole nuts and bolts of the whole process. There is a part in the book. This is a mild spoiler, but not an, an essential one for what I'm about to say. There's a part of the book that has to do with an actor getting fired mid production of the movie and another actor replacing that person. And uh, I was cast to be, in the world of the book, the actor who gets the job rather than the actor who loses the job, Excellent. which is a delightful, I think, met, a bit of meta casting in the audiobook. Um, and it has been so, I, I can't overstate how um, satisfying it has been to actually, there's so few things where you get a resolution in real life. You know, like yeah. resolutions in movies are hard because they're artificial in real life. You have your final scene, and then you keep going unless it's your last moment alive. Um, but it really, in terms of like this experience, if nothing ever else happens with it, it has been a, a rare moment where everything that I wanted to happen in terms of like, let's come together and talk, let's have an understanding, maybe you cast me in something, um, you know, has happened. And he's been so lovely i've gotten a couple of very nice emails and typewritten letters from him uh-huh. that have been everything that you hear when people have an experience with tom i i've now gone from being the outlier who has like the story you wouldn't have expected <laughs> to be like i'm like every other person who's ever interacted with him where i'm like he's great well you yeah. you have even more of a story to tell now yeah because uh, you have and, and also what what feels nice also is that he has a story like it's this is something that in a weird way, like 
I think was initially terrifying when he first found out about it because he's like, wait, I did what? What's this? But <laughs> he also has like a fun thing that's like, oh God, this guy did this thing. And then we talked and it was, you know, it's sort of, it's nice to be able to feel like you've, you've, somebody paid me a really nice compliment, which was they, they were saying as a Tom Hanks fan that they thought of that last episode of season three as like, if you're a fan of his acting and his movies and his work, mm. that this episode like is part of his body of work now in a funny way, that it's not just like a promotional interview. It's part of, it's as if there's a really good documentary um, called California typewriter. Yeah. It's about a typewriter store that is, uh, it closed during the pandemic. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a, a lovely little movie, but Tom Hanks is in that as a typewriter enthusiast. He's one of the, it's a small like section of the movie. But when I saw the movie, I'm like, this is, this is one of the most fun. If you like him as an actor, as just a participant in this documentary, it's like one of the great, like hidden Tom Hanks, like treats um, is him enthusing about his typewriter collection in that documentary and just seeing him with the collection. So I, that was a very nice compliment for someone to, to pay to that episode that they like, you know, if you like his work, that this is a thing that you kind of have to check out as part of the experience of his work as like, not just an artist, but like a, a public figure, you know. It's one of the best interviews I've ever heard on a podcast. Thank you. I mean, a lot of that is he just, you know, the he brought it to, you know, he could have easily ruined it by being a. <laughs> uh, um, I've had interviews where, like, if the if the other participant doesn't meet you at your level, mm. then you're just it's like pulling teeth, you know. Fix it in editing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll fix it in post. Yeah. A lot of it. A lot of it. A lot of. Uh, brief great interviews were disastrous uh full recordings you know what was going through your head because you talk about it in the like the preamble before the interview where you hear the murmur of his voice as he's walking down the hallway what was going through your head at that moment were you nervous to talk to him i was not nervous but i felt strange the strangest part of it was there was a little bit of pressure just because we you didn't know whether he could get a call 10 minutes in he has to go you know Hmm. And there'd be nothing we could do. So there was a, when he first said to me, um, when I first realized he hadn't listened, he personally had not listened to the podcast. So he didn't know the beats, of the story. I immediately thought, Oh no, I'm going to have to tell this story again. I thought I was done telling the story on the podcast. Now I'm going to have to tell it to him. And that's going to eat up like five to 10 minutes of the podcast. We're not. So I'm like, this is, that was potentially disastrous. If, if, if he'd had to leave 10 minutes in, all you would have heard was him hearing me and then he leaves. Um, but the weirdest part of it, other than that slight pressure, was just how similar it was to the experience of the previous time we had met, which was I'm in a room and I hear him approaching and I can tell it's him by the music of his voice and the sound of the reactions of the people who are walking with him. Because I had described that before in like the first episode when I'm telling the story that my hearing of him knowing that he was close back in the year 2000 was to hear him going like nah, 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 and you'd hear other people like laughing i'm like that's the sound of tom hanks walking down the hall talking to some people and to hear that i wasn't expecting for that to be so on the nose like if that was in a biopic or something you'd be like did that really happen <laughs> it's a little tidy you know but it happened excellent but i was not nervous talking to him because one thing is over the past decade, working in the New York comedy scene, doing a lot of improv shows where you have a celebrity guest, working occasionally on a TV show where you have to act with someone that you're you're familiar with from their body of work. I think I've gotten to the point now where the number of people that I'd be starstruck by is pretty small. Mm. It, it, you know, 
over a decade or so ago, it was everybody, like any celebrity I would have been starstruck by. Now I'm at the point where it would have to be someone that you just can't, you almost can't believe they're real, <laughs> you know, um, that they're a real person. And I've just met so many and worked with so many famous people at this point, or gotten to be friends with someone that I previously was a fan of that very quickly you sort of learn the lesson that like everybody is people and that ultimately you know when you're sitting in a room with someone you're in the room with two-time academy award winner tom hanks but he's also just a guy named tom who's very talented and has had a lifetime of experiences but they're also someone who they're thirsty they're hungry they're tired that you know it's just a person and when they're being normal with you, the greatest gift you can give to a famous person is to be normal with them. <laughs> yeah. Because so many people are freaking out around them all the time that like, that, I mean, in some cases, the greatest gift you can give is to leave a person alone. Yeah. But in this context, when I'm like, he asked to be on the podcast. So it's not like I begged him and then he's like grudgingly, he reached out to me and said, I'd be honored to be part of your podcast. So on some of them, like, well, there's no reason to be nervous. He came here because of his own free will, and we're going to talk. And the, and also, one of the reasons I think the interview really works is because at a certain point, we're just two actors yeah. talking shop. And it, and the difference between an actor who um, has won Oscars and had their face on, a, on dozens of posters and they can open a movie worldwide and they're seen by everybody, and somebody who is an under five uh in terms of like a lot of a lot of the job is the same thing you know you have to do more of it if you're the number one on the call sheet but a lot of it is waiting around oh you know when you're filming the scene the job is the same where it's like you can make or break the shot just as easily as uh the leading actor Mm. you can do exactly what's needed for the shot and they can flub a line you can flub a line and ruin their perfect take everything gets leveled at a certain point and in conversation especially when I have the home court advantage of, I know what we're doing and he doesn't, Mm. he doesn't know the story yet. He's being vulnerable coming on the podcast, you know, which is, I will forever be grateful for how vulnerable and honest he was with me in conversation because those, you shift those two things to him being like defensive and dishonest. And suddenly it's no longer even a good, (laughs) it's not, it's, it's unlistenably bad and a waste of, everyone's time yeah but he he, you know for a guy who has a lot of demands on his time like it also makes sense that like he didn't come there to waste time he came there to like deliver the the right kind of interview for it and man he did it's it's such a good interview i'm not just saying that because you're here i mean as soon as i heard that i recommended the podcast to people i was like you need to check this out is the podcast going to carry on? Because like you said, I think this is kind of a universal feeling that people have been rejected. They have had negative stuff said about them. It might be working in a factory or working in an office, but I think it's a relatable concept. Are you going to carry on with the podcast? Um, at the moment, it's it's a question mark in the sense that like, I would love to be able to continue doing it because I was really proud of what we did and everything. I know there's a lot of people... It's interesting. I get a mixed response. I get a lot of people who want it to continue and a lot of people are like, why? It's not like you bring it up and they're like almost offended that you've even broached it. Like, what would it be? Um, And the problem, and to some extent, I'm in no hurry to bring it back because I only want to bring it back if I know that it can be good in the same way and do the same thing. And I'm not, I have, the frustrating thing is there are a couple of ideas for episodes that I know if I could do those episodes, 
then season four would make total sense. And anybody who had a question mark out of it uh, about it would see those episodes, listen to them, and then undeniably go like, oh, of course, of course you came back. Because these episodes completely justify it. The problem is those episodes require certain people and they don't have anything to do really with uh, Band of Brothers or and like that. That part of it, in a, in a theoretical or practical fourth season of Dead Eyes, the Band of Brothers experience would go from being the central narrative thrust of it to being more like an origin story, something that would pop up when necessary or when something is interesting, but it wouldn't be like, I'm still trying to figure, I'm still trying to solve the mystery in some weird way. And I think the problem is I don't want to do, I don't want to be like a, uh, one of those guys who chases tornadoes, except they're replace that with celebrities. <laughs> I don't want to do a season where it's like, like I, there's an episode I want to do with Steven Spielberg, mm. but I don't want to spend a season of TV chasing Steven Spielberg. I've, I feel like that because that gets old as a gimmick very quickly. I think I had a good reason, a good personal reason to do it before. And I don't want to waste people's time with like, and now we're now I'm like the celebrity hunter. I'm going to try to, it's somebody else so it's a matter of like i'll either be able to make that episode happen or i won't yeah but if i because it's because that episode actually has to do with the there's the david crumholtz interview where <clears throat> he talks about his band of brothers audition and he had a very awkward encounter with spielberg where spielberg thought they had met before and he knew for a fact they had not <laughs> and they got into this disagreement and then years later they had another encounter where at the, where they were getting along really well and talking and at the end of it, this is the second time he's been in person with him interacting. When he meant to say, nice to see you, he said, nice to meet you. Ugh. And doubling down on this anxiety about now Steven Spielberg thinks you've met three times and been, he's denied it twice, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I think that would be a fascinating conversation to have with Spielberg, regardless of whether Spielberg has any memory of these encounters or not. He's in the same way that like Tom didn't remember firing me, mm. but he can still hear the story and he can still have a take on it. He knows who he is. He remembers who he was and he can have a reaction. I think Spielberg, even just getting Spielberg's opinions about David Krumholtz as an actor would be, would add a sort of emotional ballast and weight to the, those two anecdotes and hearing Spielberg react to those anecdotes, I think would be really delightful. But, and that's one of the episodes, I think, if you put that mm. in a season of Dead Eyes that was more about looking forward than looking backward, that was using, you know, in some ways, you lose the log line about this is one actor's quest, and you center it on me post-season three, still wanting to explore these themes, maybe occasionally finding another show business mystery that I want to solve. But I think there's a way to make it. It just would be a different variation on the, it would be more monster of the week episodes mm. and less ongoing narrative mythology episodes, but it's a lot of work making that kind of podcast. Yeah. My producers, uh, who I worked on it with now have very, like even, even in season by season three, my producers, um, worked for Adam McKay and Ira glass and they were doing dead eyes. We had to bring on a third producer um, just to not lose our minds because they were basically <laughs> doing full-time jobs and then doing dead eyes as a, an additional full-time job. And I wouldn't want to do the podcast without them, but I also wouldn't want to, uh, I, I would need to have like a really good justification to get the, get the band back together. Yeah. Uh, and make more. And it also might be that we, we make shorter seasons or come back with a special every now and then, like, I'd love to do a Dead Eyes Christmas special 
where we talked to Robert Zemeckis and the people who made the Polar Express about the you know they have a they have a literal dead eye story that is about yeah. that movie and the way that you know when you're an innovator you also are the first person to do things wrong or to do things in a way that five years later look completely outdated and I think it would I, I think it's a tender subject for Zemeckis so I don't know if he'd ever be willing to talk to me about it but I wouldn't be doing it as like oh we're gonna dunk on Polar Express because I think that's fully been that that is a that is a tree that has been shaken until every every leaf has fallen off of it my interest in it is the ambition of you know robert zemeckis through his whole career has been someone who's like oh we're gonna make who film roger rabbit a movie that nobody has made a movie like before or since um the, the way he made that movie was sort of like they had to invent all these new ways of doing yeah it. and he's a guy who he's he's the first in line to get in the experimental rocket ship you know like He's always like, I want to try it first. I'm like, well, it might blow up if you get it first. I'm like, I want to try it anyway. Which I think that's there's a um, there's a real artistic risk to that because if you if you wait until the technology is just right, you can make these movies that are timeless. But it's more exciting to be the person who's like, I want to make Back to the Future Part Two a movie where we use split screen where it doesn't have to be a solid line in the middle. It's a fluid thing where the camera can move. Yeah. We want to use this new technology in ways that no one's ever used it in a movie before. You know, that's how it, it benefits everybody when people are willing to take those risks creatively. But I don't know if they'll do a dead eyes. <laughs> I well, one listener right here. I mean, tying it yeah. to George Lucas without Jar Jar Binks, we don't get the de-aging and the digital puppetry that we get now in movies and even further than that there are i've now gotten very good at the game of you can mention any george lucas project that you think is like an abject failure and i can find like it's almost like that line from star wars where um from return of the jedi when luke's like there's good in him i can feel it like i can i have that power now with george (laughs) lucas where if someone's like Radioland Murders. I'll be like, hey, without Radioland Murders, that's the first like movie that has these digital period sets. Any TV, sh- any prestige TV show you like or movie that is set in the 1930s or the 1800s or whenever, before there were you know, airplanes and and telephone wires or whatever or, or cell towers, um, you can thank the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles and Radioland Murders. These things that like got. Um, you know, torn apart when they came out critically, but they were his digital sandbox where he was figuring out, you don't get Lord of the Rings without Young Indiana Jones Chronicles yeah. and movies like that that push the push the medium forward. Um, yeah, George, George is one of those guys that like, you know, he makes Howard the Duck and then 20 years later, every movie is a Marvel movie. And uh, yeah, yeah. I know there are people who are like, well, that's different. I'm like, it's not that different. He picks the one of the coolest marvel titles of the 1970s one of the weirdest most countercultural titles that marvel ever made and the movie didn't turn out the way that people would have liked but it was still a really cool impulse to try to make that into a movie you know yeah yeah he is an innovator and yeah like you said about polo because i really like it because i admire the ambition and what they were going for and now we see films like that all the time now and it, it, yeah. it's not surprising. But yeah, in 2004, well, we had nothing like that. Also, I mean, you could remake, you could remake Polar Express. Um, I'm, somebody probably will. You could remake it and fix a lot of the things that are weird about it. Yeah. Not all the things, because it's a weird movie in other ways. But um, I didn't see Polar Express when it came out. And part of the reason was it wasn't really 
I wasn't in the mood to see that movie at that point because it was sort of like I had heard like the Dead Eyes stuff <laughs> even at that time, and I was like, it's too much. I don't think I, I don't think I can see Tom Hanks playing characters with Dead Eyes <laughs> in in two thousand whatever that was. Um, but so I didn't see it until I had started making the podcast, and and I've since seen it. I own it. I went and saw it at a, a special screening of it um, in in Staten Island last December. Um, where they had special food and uh, uh, gift items that you, the audience was given, like jingle bells to like jingle it whenever the whenever like Santa was on screen, you're supposed to do this, you know. And and the hot chocolate song in Polar Express. Um, I was talking before about a moment in Dial of Destiny before we were recording that where I felt like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Where I felt truly a sense of wonder. The moment in Polar Express where they come out and serve the hot chocolate and sing like a two and a half minute song about hot chocolate. I don't know that I've been more taken by surprise by anything I've ever seen in a movie. Like it, it happens so quickly. It ends so abruptly while it's happening. You're not sure what you're looking at. Like it is truly one of the most uncanny. Like it, I may be enjoying it for some of the wrong reasons, but the song is also really genuinely funny because it's just people singing about we got hot chocolate <laughs> and, and it's Tom Hanks singing. I have a, I have a seven-inch vinyl single of Tom Hanks singing the Hot Chocolate song. Uh, that is how into that song I got. You have to get him to sign it next time you see him. Uh, yeah, it, I definitely that is a goal at some point. But um, but back to George, like yeah, he is part of what makes him a fascinating comedy character is that he's both high status and low status, and that I never have to lose the high status aspect of like he's George Lucas. Mm. He changed movies multiple times. He changed the way movies are made more than once. You know, I, not many people can say that even once. There are filmmakers who work their whole lives making great movies and they never change the way movies are made. Yeah. They just make good movies. And George Lucas is so big. He looms so large in the culture that, um, you know, even if you're like, I don't like Lucasfilm movies, you probably probably at least one of your 10 favorite movies was mixed at Skywalker sound. Yeah. Uh, that same person, there's some art film that that person loves that you're like, stick around with the credits. You're going to see Skywalker sound. Yeah. Uh, there's some way, yeah. yeah. There's some way um, that he has impacted. And it also means, and this is where the really fun stuff I think comes in because he's so successful creatively, financially, et cetera, that even when he's, he has a failure, like a movie doesn't do well. It's there still tends to be something about it that it's either a failure that makes more money than any other movie came out <laughs> that year. You know, like he he's the only guy who does that. Who has like he has flops that people think it was flops. I'm like that was the highest grossing movie of the year that it <laughs> came out. But everyone will be like, oh, it sucked or I hated it or what a failure. And it's like it made more money than anything I will ever do, mate. You know, I'd um, love to have a failure like that. <laughs> Yeah, the, the I could, to, you could retire off of uh, 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 having points in that failure, and the um, and that is something that like his way of like failing is funny because there's always a there's always some part of it that isn't a failure that you know like he he got so big he got he got, he looms so large that um, even when it doesn't work out for him it's somehow like you know. You know, he made a the one of the last movies he made was a movie called Strange Magic. Mm. It was an animated CGI jukebox musical that I mentioned to people. Have you ever heard of Strange Magic? I took my kids to see it. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, we're yeah. in an elite. We we're in a, you and I are in an elite club. 
Um, I, I went to one of the screenings the weekend it came out in, um, in New York City. And that was, it's still, I, I think that there's another movie that might have just beaten its record, but it, at the, up till a few weeks ago, it was the highest, it was the lowest grossing animated movie to ever be released on 3000 screens. Oh. <laughs> but you know what? It's on Disney plus most of the time. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to have a failure that was on Disney plus <laughs> most of the time. Like there are people who their biggest success in their career is that they have something that sits there on Disney plus with all the other movies and people stumble across it. They watch it. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy when a YouTube video gets, breaks the 10,000 view mark. Are you kidding me? Going on, I'm getting very conscious of the time and I'm aware that you probably have a lot of these to do. So I'm going to thank you for joining me and let you go. Oh, thanks for talking to me. I've really, really enjoyed this. I've laughed and smiled so much during this interview, more than I normally do. So thank you for that. Thank you. Oh, and we have the one thing I'll mention in addition. So just, just to get the plugs in. So yes, the George Lucas Talk Show is going to happen every Friday at Edinburgh. The Baron and the Junk Dealer is going to happen for the first 22 nights minus one day off. I think we get like August 15th off. And then for the final four shows, I'm going to be doing something called George Prov, an improvised theatrical experience. And these will be solo shows where it's just George performing. Um, and each of the four shows is going to be completely different. Um, and it's uh, uh, not to give people the wrong impression of what the show will be, but in a way it will be George's version of the ABBA show that's happening in London, the ABBA Voyage, which is the industrial light magic uh, uh, de-aging extravaganza. Imagine if George used that technology in order to um, um, pre-tape every improv move ever. Basically, George did improv for a week in a motion capture studio. And what, you're, what you'll be seeing is a digital projection of George Lucas doing whatever improv happens happens to come uh, uh, come to him in the moment. Brilliant. Uh, that, yeah, that's Sorry. genuinely interesting. How could people find you online to keep up to date with all this stuff? Uh, probably the easiest way is maybe on Instagram, uh, Connor Ratliff or the George Lucas talk show, both on Instagram. Um, and then, you know, whatever platform emerges after, uh, after Twitter completely, uh, <laughs> falls apart or somebody buys it and fixes it. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, um, maybe there'll be a fire sale. I, I'm not sure, but, uh, Instagram should be where I, where you can find me. And also if you just Google Connor Ratliff, George Lucas talk show, uh, it'll take you our, our, all of our old George Lucas talk shows are on the George Lucas talk show YouTube channel. Excellent. I'll link all of that below in the show notes. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking, Martin. Okay. How great was that? I would just like to thank Connor for his time and remind you all that he's got a few shows coming up at Edinburgh. Check the episode description for all information. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like, please subscribe, please tell your friends about it and consider leaving us a five-star review. Next week will be an interview with Deaf in Paradise star Taj Miles.